first chapter of Philippians. We have been here for the last few weeks in these two verses, and we'll look into that in just a moment and explain that a little further, but read with me verse 29 and verse 30. For unto you it is given in the behalf of Christ not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for his sake, having the same conflict which he saw in me, and now here to be in me. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for the opportunity to gather this day as you have allowed us this privilege to do. I pray that our hearts, our minds, our attention will be focused upon Christ and his truth, even as it's been revealed to us in your word. And Lord, we pray that every heart within this place, every, everyone that will hear the truth that is proclaimed this morning will have a heart submissive to your word and to your spirit as you continue to conform us that know Christ to the image of your Son. And Lord, if there be those here that know not the Lord Jesus, we ask that your Spirit might use the truth of the Word of God to pierce those hearts, to bring to saving faith those that are without Christ. We thank you for this tremendous provision that's been made on our behalf, the excellency of knowing Christ that excels, that exceeds, that is far superior above all other things. So may we remember this truth and keep that in mind throughout the days which we live. And may it be truly the passion of our very heart. May it be the very drive of our lives and spirits to know Jesus, to know Him more. And may you be glorified and honored in and through all things, we pray. Father, we ask your blessing upon those as well that are away from us this day, those that are traveling, those who are hindered, whatever the reasons may be. We just pray, Father, you'll bring them back safely and quickly to us, that we may edify one another in your truth, that we may grow together in the love and knowledge of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And may you be glorified, may your name be lifted up, may your glory be revealed, may your power be known in the world in which we live through your church as you have so desired to do so. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you and be seated. Over the past two weeks, we have examined Paul's statement in verse uh, 29 of Philippians chapter 1 when Paul says, For unto you it is given in the behalf of Christ... Not, on, or not to believe on him, not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for his sake. So Paul says, it is given in the behalf of Christ not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for his sake. Uh, some three weeks ago, we finished our study of chapter 1, but then I came back a couple of weeks ago to verse 29 specifically to address what Paul states here so that we have a better understanding in light of entire, the entirety of the biblical context and teaching concerning this matter of suffering that Paul mentions in this passage. Again, it is very easy for us to come across passages such as this in our reading and to just simply overlook or bypass uh, this truth without giving it the consideration that it deserves, without digging into what is actually being stated here. It's interesting because in this particular passage, Paul not only states that suffering is a part of the life of the believer, but he says it is given to you. It is, it is granted unto you, not only to believe on Christ, that is given unto us to believe, but also those who do believe on him to therefore suffer for his name's sake or for his sake. I've emphasized how that Paul's thesis statement through the many weeks of our study of Philippians, Paul's thesis statement in chapter 1 and verse 10 is just as significant in relation to the last verses of this chapter, verses 29 and 30, as it is to the previous verses of the chapter. Paul stated in Philippians 1, 9 and 10, 
After, or in this I pray, that your love may abound yet more and more in knowledge and in all judgment, verse 10, that ye may approve things that are excellent, that ye may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ. And so we see that Paul's thesis statement for the entirety of this epistle or letter is found in verse 10 when he says that ye may approve. His prayer, his desire, is that, the, that these Philippian believers may approve, in other words, that they might acknowledge, that test and prove that which is excellent, the things that are excellent, that that which is superior. And the word excellent here means superior. And Paul goes on to expound upon this in chapter 3 of the same epistle whenever he states that I may know him, uh, and the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings, being made conformable unto his death. Paul is saying, this is my desire to know him. And Paul goes on to explain how that knowledge is more excellency. He says, I forsake all things for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord. So he's saying the superiority of knowing Jesus, knowing Christ, not only in salvation again, but knowing Christ in this continual relationship and fellowship in growing in the knowledge and faith of our Lord Jesus Christ as scripture has revealed him to be. Paul is stating here that this is superior to all other things. Everything else is refuse. Everything else is dung, he says. Everything else is garbage. He said the only thing that accounts or amounts to anything is knowing Jesus. And when this is understood, everything else pales in comparison. I also explained that suffering for the cause of Christ is clearly linked to the theme of this first chapter concerning, number one, the fellowship of the gospel, as we've discovered in verses 3 through 11. Number two, the furtherance of the gospel, Paul mentions, in verses 12 through 26. And then three, the faith of the gospel, in verses 27 through 30. So Paul declared in verses 29 through 30 again, that it is given in the behalf of Christ, not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for his sake, having the same conflict which you saw in me and now here to be in me. So Paul is declaring that to suffer for Christ's sake is excellent, or that to suffer for Christ's sake is superior to not suffering for Christ's sake. During this portion of our study, I've pointed out to you in Paul's epistle to the believers in Rome what he states concerning the matter of suffering. In Romans 8, 16 through 30, this is quite a lengthy passage, but I'll read it to you. Paul says, The Spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and joint heirs with Christ, if so be that we suffer with him, that we may be also glorified together. For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us, for the earnest expectation of the creature waiteth for the manifestation of the sons of God. For the creature was made subject to vanity, not willingly, but by reason of him who hath subjected the same in hope, because the creature itself also shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together until now. And not only they, but ourselves also, which have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting for the adoption to wit, the redemption of our body. For we are saved by hope, but hope that is seen is not hope. For what a man seeth, why doth he yet hope for? But if we hope for that we see not, then do we with patience wait for it. Likewise, the Spirit also helpeth our infirmities, for we know not what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit itself maketh intercession, intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. And he that searcheth the hearts knoweth what is the mind of the Spirit, because he maketh intercession for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. 
For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called, and whom he called, them he also justified, and whom he justified, them he also glorified. So Paul makes it clear here in this passage in Romans 8 that to be a recipient of the blessings of God in Jesus Christ is also to be a partaker in his sufferings. And again, he uses two terms here. He says that we are heirs of God, and the preposition of is important here, meaning we have received of him, from him. But then he goes on to say, and joint heirs with Christ, which is a different preposition, obviously. And this means that just as Christ has received from the Father, so we have received of the Father. Not just that we have received from God, but we have received from God just as the Lord Jesus Christ has received of the Father because we have received Christ. And in Christ, all spiritual blessings are realized, Ephesians 1.3. So it's in Jesus that we receive all of these blessings. So to receive Jesus is to receive all the blessings of God. To receive the blessings of God is to have received Jesus Christ. Hence, we are heirs of God. We receive from him, but we are also joint heirs with Christ. We receive just as Christ has received because all blessings are in him. And so Paul is making this distinction here. But notice that he says that we are heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if so be that we suffer with him, that we may be also glorified together. Now, Paul is not saying that there is a contingency here and saying, okay, well, you become a joint heir as long as you take, partake of the sufferings too. But if you ex- decide not to partake of the sufferings, then you know, you're, you're really skipping out on, the, on being a joint heir with Christ. No, he is saying to be a joint heir with Christ in the blessings is also to be a recipient in not only blessing, but also suffering for the cause of Christ, for his name's for his name's sake. And that's why Paul says, even in our text, as we've read in verse 29, for unto you it is given, it is granted to you in the behalf of Christ, on the behalf of Christ, in him, not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for his sake. It's interesting, isn't it, how many people today harp or talk about blessings of God, blessings of God, blessings of God, and yet never associate or identify that at all with the sufferings of of the gospel, or the suffering for Christ and for his name's sake. But Paul here is stating very clearly in both Philippians and Romans that to know Jesus is to know him in every capacity, meaning in his life, in his death, in his suffering, and that to do so is therefore to understand, to know Christ is to understand as well as he is teaching us that if we've received of his blessings, we receive also the sufferings of Christ because we do not get to cherry pick what we want to as though this thing of salvation is some buffet that's laid out for us and we can go through and pick and choose what we want and we can reject or deny that which we don't want. The fact of the matter is, if it, I said to you uh, last week, and we'll deal with this again in just a moment, that this is the reality of it. It's not that we are, are, are masochistic or that we like suffering or we enjoy pain or we enjoy grief or we enjoy sorrow by any means. Of course, that's not the situation. But what we must come to is an eternal perspective on life according to the scriptures. And we'll look into this more this morning. But where we understand that all of these things about us, including the sufferings of this life and the persecution that may come for the sake of the gospel, for the cause of Christ, is a temporary thing. And we are to view it as such from an eternal perspective, recognizing that God is working a far greater thing, a far greater glory is being accomplished through our, us being conformed to the image of Christ, which often takes place through suffering. 
And so because Christ suffered and Peter says he left us an example that we should follow in his steps. And if Jesus suffered, then do we not expect to suffer for the cause of Christ? Now we've dealt with this in quite some detail. And again, I'll review this even more so in just a moment. But let me remind you, as I said last week, and we'll come to this again in a moment. But the fact of the matter is, it's not that we enjoy suffering. None of us like to suffer. I, I don't want to suffer. I don't want to, I don't want to be grieved. I don't want to be in sorrow. I don't want to hurt. I don't want to be afflicted. I don't want people to persecute me. I don't want any of that. And neither do you, if we're honest. But here's what we must come to. We must have our love for righteousness and our love for Christ must exceed our hatred of suffering. So if we hate suffering so, so desperately and terribly, which we do, then we don't want suffering. So what is the answer to this? Our love for righteousness, our love for holiness, our love for Christ must supersede our hatred of suffering. And if that is not the case, then we will not embrace suffering or endure it joyfully as Scripture commands. The only way that we can suffer and do so joyfully is when we love the righteousness and the holiness and the purity that is being accomplished, God's glory being revealed through our lives in the process of suffering, when we love that more than we love the suffering itself. So let me answer a few questions here, bringing us to the third question this morning, which is our last question from this portion of our text. First of all, we asked a couple of weeks ago, why does suffering exist? Now, I'm briefly going over this. There's much more detail to this, but in a nutshell. First of all, original sin. The sin of Adam in the Garden of Eden introduced sin into the world. And then the second reason suffering exists is actual sins, which means the sins which men personally commit as descendants of Adam. So we are all born inherently wicked because of the natural uh, the sinful nature of Adam, which is passed on to us through his bloodline. But then there's also theologically or what is referred to theologically as actual sins, which are in relation to the sins which we commit. So no man can stand before God and point a finger at God and say, oh, I, I, I'm, I'm going to be condemned or damned because Adam sinned. No, all men are guilty themselves as well. So there's this original sin and then there's actual sins. Second, we asked last week, what is the purpose of suffering? Verse 18, for I reckon that the sufferings of this present time of Romans chapter 8, I reckon the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. First, we saw God works through suffering to reveal His glory. Paul stated, glory which shall be revealed in us. By what means? By this process of suffering. In Acts 9, 11-16, 2 Corinthians 12, 7-10, we see this. Second, the future glory which God is working is far greater than the present suffering. This is the purpose for suffering. 2 Corinthians 4, 17 and 18, Paul said, For our light affliction, which is but for a moment worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. This is what I was referring to just a moment ago. While we look not at the things which are seen, but the things which are not seen, and then Paul explains the eternal perspective here, for the things which are seen are temporal or temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. So Paul here is saying, our light affliction, and again, I don't want to belabor the point here, but let me remind you. In Acts chapter 9, Paul or the Lord speaks to Ananias, who he sends to go meet Paul, and he says to Ananias, he said, go unto Paul, or Saul, he says, I will show him what great things he must suffer for my name's sake. So the Lord referred to the sufferings of Paul, which he would suffer for the cause of Christ and the gospel, to be great suffering. And yet here in 2 Corinthians, Paul says, our light affliction. So all this great suffering from, that God declares will be, Paul's saying, oh, my perspective of this, Paul isn't downplaying it by any means. 
But he had an eternal perspective looking not at the things which are seen, not at his present condition or circumstances, but at the eternal work that God was accomplishing through this unto his glory, which Paul therefore says this is an eternal perspective. So if Christ suffered, as Peter tells us, we will also suffer as we are being conformed to his image. 1 Peter 2, 21 through 23. For even here in two were ye called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that ye should follow his steps. Who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth. Who, when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judgeth righteously. Suffering is good in that. First, it drives us to depend upon our Lord Jesus Christ and his strength. Suffering is good too in that it draws genuine believers together in the purity of fellowship. Suffering is good, three, in that it delivers us from a, having a worldly attitude and view of life. And four, suffering demonstrates that we have identified in the person and work of our Lord Jesus Christ. These are all biblically stated truths. Last week I explained to you that if we are to understand what the scriptures teach us concerning suffering, as I mentioned a moment ago, we must have an eternal perspective, which Paul spoke of in 2 Corinthians. In other words, though we despise suffering, our love for truth and righteousness And our love for the Lord Jesus Christ must be greater than our hatred of suffering. Let me give you a very personal, uh, literal example, a practical example of this that will help. After the sermon last week, my brother-in-law Nathan was here, of course, and we were talking. And he mentioned how many demonstrate this approach to physical situations in life. That they love something that's going to be more than their hatred of that which is at the moment. And he gave this example, and I don't do this, so it's only hearsay, but I've heard that there are people that go to gyms. And I've heard that they work out at gyms. And I've heard that they will go through grueling tasks and grueling work and sweat and hurt, and the next day they are sore, and maybe they go back and then they're sore while they're exercising. I've heard there's people that run on these things called treadmills. And they go nowhere and they just run. It's totally out of context, but I would refer back to Proverbs where the scripture says, the wicked flee or the wicked run when no one pursueth. (laughs) But there's people that run on treadmills, right? And look, there is nothing enjoyable to me about running on a treadmill. There's nothing enjoyable to me about running, period. But some people love it or they do it, and some people don't love to run. Some people will exercise, and they hurt, and they're sore, and they are suffering, and they are enduring the present pain. Why? There has to be a reason. There has to be a goal, because they are looking to something that's going to result in or produce in the future. And they're saying, right now, this pain is worth what I believe is going to be tomorrow or the next day or the next week. And that's exactly what Paul is saying when he says that we look not at things which are temporal, the ever-present now, the light affliction, but we look to that which is eternal, that which we cannot see, and we love righteousness more than our, our, our love for righteousness is greater than our hatred of suffering. And so we are willing, therefore, to endure the suffering because we recognize and realize that God is producing something far beyond our imagination in eternity that is eternal compared to that which we are suffering at the moment. This was Paul's attitude towards suffering. And this is what he was saying in 2 Corinthians 4, 17 through 18, which we've read. So this morning I'm going to ask them, 
and then answer the third and final question concerning suffering from verses 29 and 30 in relation to Paul's statement he makes in verse 29, specifically when he states, it is given in the behalf of Christ not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for his sake. So how then does God use suffering? We've seen why does suffering exist. We've answered that question. What is the purpose of suffering? And now we come to the third question, which I want to answer this morning. How does God use suffering? Romans 8, 28 and 29. Back to Romans 8. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose, for whom he did for no he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, that we might be the firstborn among many brethren. Now, as we've discovered over the past several weeks, this passage of Scripture in Romans 8 deals with suffering within the world, and more specifically, the suffering which exists within the lives of those who, believe, who are believers in Jesus Christ. And as I've noted over the past several weeks, suffering is not something which we desire, it's not something which we enjoy, nor is it something that we always understand. Yet this passage of Scripture teaches us much more about suffering so that even when we don't understand suffering, we can learn how to respond to suffering as followers of Jesus Christ and hopefully have a greater understanding of the biblical truth of suffering so that we might therefore view persecution or suffering for the cause of Christ and the gospel in light of what Scripture teaches. Regarding suffering, Paul stated in Romans 8, again going back there to verse 22, 23, 24, and 25. He says, For we know that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together until now. And not only they, but ourselves also, which have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting for the adoption, to wit, the redemption of our body. For we are saved by hope, but hope that is seen is not hope. For what a man seeth, why doth he yet hope for? But if we hope for that we see not, then do we with patience wait for it. Now within these verses, Paul explains that all of creation suffers, and we're not going to delve into all of this and expound upon all of this, but he's speaking about creation as a whole. And why does creation suffer? Because of original sin. Why do men suffer? Because of original sin and actual sins. And so we see that this includes, the suffering includes all humanity when he speaks of creation. Due to man's sin, there is suffering. Yet all those suffering is a present reality with which all men must contend. We all experience this. None of us are immune to this. For those who are in Christ, there is hope or there is confidence that we will be delivered from all suffering when God makes all things new. And that is what Paul is bringing into the picture here in Romans chapter 8. He is saying all, that suffering exists, no one is exempt from it, the whole of creation is under a condemnation or under the curse of sin, and has, remember Adam's sin, God cursed the earth, and he told Adam that he was going to bring uh, forth fruit out of thistles and ground and the sweat of his brow. He was going to plow the ground and so on and so forth. And so the earth now experienced a curse itself because of Adam's sin. So creation itself is under this consequence of sin. It's under this curse of sin because of Adam's sin. And so when Paul uses these references here to creation travaileth and groaneth all of creation until the redemption of our body, he's saying till, the, till we are delivered from this sinful curse and the world is delivered from the sinful curse in which God will make all things new. So here's what I'm saying to you. For the unbeliever, suffering is a reality. But it's not suffering for righteousness sake, but suffering exists nonetheless. For the believer, there is suffering as well, which is a reality. In other words, hear me, and I'm going to burst some bubbles here of what's commonly spoken of today. To be born again and to know Jesus Christ, to walk with Jesus Christ, to love Jesus Christ, is not to be delivered from all problems of life, or all pains of life, or all sorrows of life, or all griefs of life, but it is to have hope, to have confidence 
that all of these things are temporary. And there is an eternal work that God is producing, an eternal glory that shall be revealed. And so it's to understand that while the world suffers, so does the believer. And all of this is a consequence of sin because the reason the world will even persecute the believer is due to sin. Because the world loves sin, hates righteousness, therefore persecute those who do righteously. And so this is the cause, this is the reason that this even persecution and suffering exists. And so God will make all things new, so there's this hope that is present for the believer. The following verses emphasize several truths concerning how God works during suffering or how God uses suffering in his divine plan. Now again, it's important to recognize that although God is not the author of suffering, he is able to use it to fulfill his purposes nonetheless. This is very truth should cause us to be thankful and to stand in awe of such an awesome God and what he's accomplishing. For he alone can take the destruction which man has caused and use it in a constructive, redemptive way. He can restore. That's what he does. That's what redemption is. So let's look first of all. God demonstrates his provision for us in our suffering. Because the question is, how does God use suffering? Well, he uses it to demonstrate his provision for us in suffering. Romans 8, 26 and 27. Likewise, the Spirit also helpeth our infirmities, for we know not what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit itself maketh intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. And he that searcheth the hearts knoweth what is the mind of the Spirit, because he maketh intercession for the saints according to the will of God. As always, it is necessary that one understand the language used in the Scripture if one is going to understand the truth that is proclaimed. Notice he says likewise. Likewise means similarly, or similarly the same. Infirmities, weakness, sickness, or disease intercession, to plead, groanings, a sigh, such as a result of deep concern, which cannot be uttered, unexpressed or wordless, something that cannot be expressed in words. So from this understanding of the words Paul used, we conclude that Paul is saying, similarly, or in the same manner, the Spirit also helps our weakness, for we know when we know not what we should pray or how to pray as we should, the Spirit pleads for us in a way which cannot be expressed in words. This is what Paul is saying here. Verse 27 explains that although the intercession of the Spirit on our behalf cannot be put into words of the human language, our Heavenly Father knows exactly what the Spirit desires and asks because the Spirit of God always prays for us according to the will of God the Father. So in relation to suffering, we often would pray for God to remove the cause of suffering. Yet the Spirit may intercede on our behalf and pray rather that the Lord use the suffering in our lives to sanctify us in the process of conforming us to the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, if we, if we have a temporal perspective, even in moments of temporal perspective, what we will do is we will say, okay, God, please remove this source of pain. Please remove this source of suffering. Even if it's for the cause of the gospel, we'll say, Lord, please remove this opposition. Please remove And we think that the furtherance of the gospel will will abound by the lack of suffering. But let me remind you of a truth. And all of this is tied in with the theme of the first chapter, which is the fellowship of the gospel, the furtherance of the gospel, and the faith of the gospel. And we must remember that throughout history, since the first century, the gospel always prevailed, the church always grew in fellowship and purity and, and, and boldness when persecution was present. So when there was opposition to the gospel in a very pronounced manner, that is when the gospel was furthered. That's 
reason the church grew. Maybe not in numbers, but grew in depth and in root and in foundation, under, foundational understanding and in dependency upon the Lord Jesus Christ. And let me speak this here to that matter. It's important that we recognize that we have lived, we live in a day in which I think you could go through some of the, the letters written to the seven churches in Revelation that Jesus wrote to those churches, and you understand that we are living in a day in which apparently, as it would be from a, 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 perspe- a worldly perspective or looking even from a religious perspective, that the church by large today is living independent of the sufficiency and dependency upon the Lord Jesus Christ rather than depending upon the Lord Jesus Christ. But that does not make the church strong at all. In fact, it makes it unbiblical and very weak. And so we understand that it's through this means of suffering that God is demonstrating his provision for us. We recognize that God has made provision for us as his children in suffering. Notice verse 26 again, he says, Likewise, the Spirit also helpeth our infirmities. Now when Paul says this, the context is that of all the suffering he's already been mentioned, mentioning, and the curse of sin, and how the world groaneth and travaileth. And so what he's saying is, likewise, he's saying that the Spirit of God is making uh, intercession, helpeth us in the time of our infirmities and our weakness. Second, letter B, God reveals his providential work through suffering. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. Again, we understand that the context of these verses is still that of suffering within the life of the believer. And this verse shows us that God is providentially working in the life of every believer in the midst of suffering. Paul makes uh, an absolute statement when he says, and we know. There is no doubt within the life of the follower of Jesus Christ that he is and remains to be Lord. Suffering, in other words, does not breed doubt within the life of the follower of Jesus Christ, but rather it does exactly the opposite. It breeds confidence that all things remain under his control. The believer in Jesus Christ is confident that Jesus Christ is Lord in what we consider as both the good and the bad times of life. There are two very important truths conveyed in Paul's choice of verbs that he uses. He says, and we know that all things work together for good to them that love God. The verb work and the statement, them that love God, are both in the present tense. This indicates that God is presently working and that those in, who, in who, those in whom he is working, they have a consistent, ongoing, and unchanging relationship with him. In other words, suffering does not cause the child of God to waver in faith, but rather grounds him in the faith. And this is not to say that we do not have moments in which we demonstrate unbelief, but rather, in the end, it will result in a life that is matured in the faith as we are driven to trust in God's providence and rest in the person and work of His Son, Jesus Christ. So Paul says, and we know that all things work together for good to them that love God. Then he goes on to say, to them who are the called according to His purpose. Within this portion of the text, Paul is saying, we who love God and are called according to his purpose, know or understand and are confident that all things work together to accomplish that which is good. The word purpose, it means plan. Another way to convey this truth would be to say, we who love God are called to his purpose, know that God is providentially working all things according to his preordained plan. The next truth we consider ties all of this passage together. The letter C, God perfects his purpose in our lives through suffering. Verses 29 through 30 of Romans 8, 
And for whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called. Whom he called, them he also justified. Whom he justified, them he also glorified. In verse 29, Paul expounds on the previous truth he had stated. God predestinated those he foreknew, and the we in verse 28 is who he's talking about, to be conformed to the image of his Son. Both verbs which Paul used, foreknow and predestinate, are in the aorist tense, active voice, and indicative mood. And this is important in that it means that God actively chose and planned ahead to conform us to the image of Jesus Christ. And this, of course, corresponds with his purpose. That is to say, his predetermined plan, which we find mentioned in verse 28. As I've explained many times to you in verse 28 of Romans 8, this verse cannot be isolated. It must be understood within its proper context, as all Scripture. So the good mentioned in verse 28 is not referring to the circumstances of life, including suffering, but rather the work that God accomplishes through the circumstances of life and suffering, which we experience. Specifically, the suffering which we experience for Christ's sake. And second, his purpose also mentioned in verse 28 is not an open-ended statement. But it is explained throughout this chapter and specifically in verse 29. Within verse 29 of Romans 8, Paul declared that it is God's predetermined plan to conform us into the image of his Son. So we know that all things work together. All things, including the sufferings of life, specifically for the cause of the gospel and for Christ's sake, is working to accomplish that which is good as God is, a, as God is conforming us to the image of His Son. That's what Paul is stating here. Verse 30 further explains how God's plan and purpose is perfected. Moreover, whom He did predestinate, them He also called. Whom He called, them He also justified. And whom He justified, them He also glorified. Once again, Paul uses verbs in the aorist tense and indicative mood, which means that they denote an action in the past here. So this implies that God's work is a finished work, which is demonstrated progressively in time. God's purpose is perfected in those he has predetermined to conform to the image of his Son, which includes suffering in all of those who are called, justified, and glorified by God. So if we can look beyond that which we see, the sufferings of life, and look by faith to that which is not seen, the eternal weight of glory, as Paul mentions in 2 Corinthians, that God is working through even suffering, we can then respond to this granting of suffering in our lives, as, first, as Philippians 1.29 tell us, in a biblical manner. Which means that we will understand that through suffering, first, God is providentially working on our behalf. And that through suffering, second, God is perfecting His holy, eternal purpose and plan as He conforms us to the image of Jesus Christ. Suffering is not something we enjoy. But as followers of Jesus Christ, it is not only something we must endure, but it is also something which we can appreciate when we understand that all these things are being worked out by our Heavenly Father to our good as He is conforming us to the image of Jesus Christ. And all of this is ultimately being done unto His glory, for His glory. Suffering is a reality in your life. How foolish it is for people to try to tell other people that they don't have to suffer. Whenever we know suffering is a consequence of sin, and we also know that suffering has been given unto us to suffer for the cause of Jesus Christ, for His name's sake. It is foolish for someone to believe or think at any moment that suffering is not a part of life or that they can escape or avoid suffering. 
But as a follower of Christ, let us understand, let us have an eternal perspective and understanding that God is working a far greater work of eternal glory, which we cannot even begin to imagine, through even the sufferings of this life. And if we're going to suffer, and all men are, then why not suffer in identity with Jesus Christ for righteousness' sake? And when doing so, we have confidence that this is resulting in something good, not that which is destructive, but that which God is performing redemptively. So we are to rejoice We are to endure, and we are to consider ourselves, as Peter said, blessed or happy when we suffer for righteousness' sake. And the only way you can do that, look, that seems so contradictive to our way of thinking, because we say avoid suffering at all cost, avoid suffering by any means, avoid suffering no matter what it takes. We don't want to hurt, we don't want to suffer, so we must avoid suffering. And yet Peter says, oh, you're blessed of God if you suffer for Jesus' sake. But Paul says, our lot of affliction is but... Uh, for a moment. It's it's a simple thing compared to that which God is working. It's an insignificant thing. Paul said, the knowledge of Christ is superior to all things, and all things I count as inferior and refuse other than knowing Jesus. And so we must understand, simply put, if we are going to endure suffering, as Scripture tells us, with joy, if we are going to embrace suffering in identity with Jesus Christ, then we must come to this conclusion, and this must be a reality daily in our lives, that our love for Jesus Our love for righteousness, our love for holiness is greater than our hatred of suffering. That is the only way that we will ever embrace this truth. So we say we love the Lord, don't we? We say we love Jesus. We say we love truth. We say we love righteousness. But do we love it that much? And that's really the question to be answered. Do we really love righteousness more than, is our love for righteousness and love for Christ greater than our hatred for personal suffering? If you were to ask the Apostle Paul, you know what his answer would be to that, which we've already looked at in Philippians chapter 1? For to me, to live is Christ. And to die is gain. That's an eternal perspective. For me, living is Christ. And dying is gain because now I'm with him. 